Tonight we're going to finish up our series of studies on the life of Joseph. Last week we talked about the moment of reconciliation that took place between Joseph and his brothers. And it was, if you recall, it was this massive, powerful, emotional event. And in response, Joseph was weeping so hard that the entire household heard him weeping. And one can only imagine what the servants in the household were thinking all the time that they were standing outside while Joseph was conversing with his brothers and they heard the weeping because we said that it was heard all through his household. Maybe they stood there. Maybe they heard a few words exchanged as well, but they were speaking in the Hebrew language, so it was all unintelligible to them. So I'm sure they were very confused. But eventually the events that took place privately in Joseph's house became known throughout uh, not only his household, but the news of those events reached Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh instructed Joseph to offer his father and family the very best of the land of Egypt. So we're going to pick it up in Genesis 45 verses uh, 16. Uh, We're going to be skipping a little bit more tonight because they're trying to get through the end of this story and uh, there's sections in this part of the story that uh, uh, it would just take more time to read than there's really, uh, it wouldn't add anything to what we're going to do. So Beginning in verse 16, Genesis 45. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, for I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best, excuse me, (coughs) for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a, a change of clothes. Uh, But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, uh, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, this part cracks me up. Do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) It's just almost sounds like a parent talking to his child there. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So, Presumably, Pharaoh was was more than grateful for Joseph's economic wonder and his uh, his acumen in that area, which was uh, in the process of saving the empire from starvation uh, to say nothing of help, help, helping Pharaoh retain his own power base. In fact, we'll see tonight expand his power base, make Pharaoh more powerful than ever before. And so at Pharaoh's command, Joseph ordered wagons to provide transport for all of Jacob's family and all of his entourage. And he sent his brothers back to Canaan with a warning not to quarrel along the way, uh, which tells me that Joseph had no illusions uh, regarding his brothers. He knew that their journey was not over yet. They hadn't arrived. There was still a possibility 
that they were going to get into some kind of quarrel. Uh, Joseph probably did not realize that the generosity flowing from Egypt to his family would one day result in a 400 years slavery from which the nation of Israel would one day have to be delivered. But as we look at the what Pharaoh said and what Joseph did, there are subtle differences between what the two rulers of Egypt, uh, Joseph and Pharaoh, offered to Jacob's family. Both of them told them to come down to Egypt, but Joseph suggested that they come and live separated from the Egyptians by forming an enclave in the district of Goshen in the fertile uh, eastern Nile Delta. And Pharaoh, by contrast, he, uh, he told them to leave all their stuff behind and not to regret it. Don't even think about it. Don't even worry about that stuff. But then Joseph urged his father to come and bring all of his flocks and all of his possessions. So there's a little difference there between how Jacob, Joseph carried out the orders of Pharaoh in this situation. And, and, and these differences raise a very important question. And I think this is what Joseph was trying to do. The question is, would Israel be assimilated completely into Egypt and lose all of its distinctiveness, as Pharaoh seems to wish? Or can the seed project, the, the vision of Abraham, the promise of God that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would that be preserved by Israel keeping its cultural identity and living as a nation within a nation? And assimilation versus separation is an issue that's already raised its head in Genesis, and it will recur throughout the history of Israel. In fact, that was, that was one of the problems that created issues after they took possession of the promised land for years. They started intermarrying. You know, uh, they had laws, they had rules. God had forbidden them to marry outside of, out of, outside of uh, Israel. Now, I want you to be, understand very clearly that had nothing to do with race. Some people have used that to defend their own racism. That's not what it had anything to do with. It had to do with their moral and religious purity. Because he knew, and you can see it, he mentions this throughout the Old Testament, God knew that if they intermarried with them, they would start adopting their false gods. And they would start worshiping idols. And, th and that's exactly what happened to Israel. So this was a problem all along. And... and uh, and Joseph, um, he, he had a different idea. He didn't want that to happen. Pharaoh imagined, in his mind, Joseph had himself been completely assimilated into Egypt, and, and therefore his family should be assimilated as well. Uh, uh, perhaps the tension is indicated in, it, it, it is reflected in the fact that there are two distinct, distinct descriptions of Jacob's sons in this text. Some places they're called Joseph's brothers, than other places they're called the sons of Israel. It's the same people, but, but you can see they're being referred to in different ways. But what is clear is that Pharaoh had different ideas from Joseph. And so eventually, uh, we know that later on, as we get to the book of Exodus, many, many years later, one of Pharaoh's successors who did not know Joseph would also have different ideas. So anyway, these brothers, they were soon sent on their journey with ample provisions, though, though here... Once more, Joseph differentiated between Benjamin and the others by giving him five changes of clothes and 300 pieces of silver. It's almost as if he was returning to Benjamin the clothes that had been torn from him on multiple occasions. And he was giving him the silver in return for the silver that his other brothers had obtained for Joseph. But whatever it is, Joseph was favoring Benjamin as once his father had favored him. So they get home and they tell Jacob 
I mean, this is quite the way to, to uh, come home and make a greeting. They say, hey, Dad, uh, just want you to know Joseph is alive. And that's, that's already shocking enough. And he's the ruler of all of Egypt. It's like, wait a minute. What are you trying to say here? What are you trying to pull? And at first he didn't believe it at all. In fact, we're told, I love the phrase that's, as it's translated the NESV, it says, his heart became numb. It was, it was, he could not absorb it. We, is, we, we can imagine that <clears throat> the man was at risk of a heart attack. Uh, you know, Judah had warned that the loss of Benjamin would kill the old man. And, and here we have the knowledge that Joseph was still alive, nearly did. It was just a heart-stopping shock. However, when the brothers reported what Joseph had said, and when Jacob saw all the tangible evidence of the wealth of the wagon standing in his courtyard, he rapidly came back to his life, back to life, came back to his senses, and he decided to go and see his long lost son before he died. <clears throat> so we're going to pick it up in 46, verse 1 from there. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba <clears throat> and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That's just a beautiful promise there. He's saying he's going to be there the day you, you pass away. Uh, it's going to be, that's a very precious promise, I'm sure, to Jacob. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, all of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So Jacob, upon hearing that Joseph is alive and that he's the ruler of Egypt, and he believes it now because uh, you know, there was, uh, there was a, 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 it was a massive display of wealth that had been sent there. And so he decides, all right, I'm going to go see my son, Joseph. And on his way there, on his journey, Jacob stopped at a place called Beersheba. Now that's a place that had, that was of great significance to him and to his family. That was where his grandfather, Abraham had gone after the drama of binding his son Isaac, you remember when Abraham was told, take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, go up on the mountain and sacrifice him. When all that was done, Abraham went to Beersheba uh, on the heels of what God had done there. It was there that God had appeared to Isaac. And it was from there that Jacob had set out in his travels many, many years before. So, so Jacob stopped there and it, we're told that he offered a sacrifice to God. It was a, as I said, it was a significant place to, to him, to his family. And so in that place, he decided to offer a sacrifice to God. And in response, God broke his silence of more than 22 years. And he spoke to Jacob for the first time since Joseph was a boy. God called to him in a vision of the night, we're said. And the, the language that God used, Jacob probably knew, was very similar to that uh, which God used uh, in his speech to Abraham when he told him to offer up his son Isaac Let's read what God said to Jacob. God, God called Jacob, Jacob's name in a vision, said, Jacob, Jacob. And then Jacob responded by saying, here I am. Then God says, we read it before, but let's read it again. Verse three, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. 
I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now this was a momentous moment. This move that Jacob was about to take, it was, it was as historically important as Abraham's departure from the Ur of the Chaldeans to travel to the promised land. This was a significant moment. It was setting the course for the nation for 400 years plus. So it was a big moment. And what God said to Jacob, Jacob was, was remarkable, and it seems calculated to reassure Jacob about his immediate next, next step, that he should not fear to take Joseph's advice and move to Egypt, for there the promise of making Israel a great nation would be realized. Now that's, that's really interesting because they, their family, since Abraham, Abraham had been holding on to God's promise that he was going to make them a great nation, but now, what is God saying? He's, he's giving them further revelation, helping them to see more clearly. And he's saying, I am going to great, make a great nation, but guess what? I'm going to do it in Egypt. This was new information that, that, that no one in that family had heard before. The, 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 the fact that they would become a great nation in Israel, I mean, excuse me, in Egypt, was, was, would have been shocking news, I'm sure. And we're going to come back to that because... Uh, the idea of them becoming a great nation, it's, it's, it's also kind of mind-blowing. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But I, I think the question I want to ask here is this text implies that Jacob was hesitant or afraid of making this move. And, and so the question is, why would Jacob be hesitant or afraid to move to Egypt? Well, first of all, think this through. First of all, number one, the land from which he was moving, the land he was leaving, was the promised land. This was the, the land that, that God had promised to his grandfather Abraham decades earlier. This was the land for which Abraham had left everything behind, everything that he knew, and he left Ur to, in order to, to obtain this place. And, and after years of sojourning, and years of troubles, Israel and the family was finally established in the promised land. And now, now they're getting ready to leave. This, this is where God called me to be. Now I'm going to go? Now I'm going to leave? Can you see how this could be a little confusing in the moment? Uh, the, the call was now to leave the land. They clearly knew God had promised to them. How could they do this? This is the place to which God had called them. They had arrived. They were where they were, they were promised to be. They were ready to bloom into the great nation that God had promised them that they would be. The vision and the promise had all fallen into place. It was ready to go. And now they're leaving? So you can see it might be a little confusing there. It might be a little, make him pause for a moment to think, now if we leave, are we going to have to come back and conquer this land? Are we going to have to take back what is ours? What's, what's going to happen if we just take off? Jacob must have wrestled with these issues. Surely, you know, he wanted to see his son Joseph his long lost son had been gone for so long and he wanted to see him probably more than anything. He wanted to hold him in his arms. He wanted to hug him. He wanted to see with his own eyes the truth of what his other sons were telling him. But then on the other hand, is he abandoning the vision of God? Is he walking away from the promise of God? Should he leave the land God had promised uh, or was God at work in these events? What should he do? So there's some confusion there, I'm sure. I'm sure he was wrestling with all these things and wondering if, if he was, was doing the right thing. But on top of that, and I think this is something we don't think about very often, 
You remember when we talked about in the very first introductory session, we talked about how what Joseph knew. And you remember all history, at this point in time, none of this was written down. It was all passed down orally. And it was a very painstaking ordeal to make sure that it was memorized correctly. And so Jacob and all of his ancestors and his, ch his children, his sons, they would have known the history of Abraham and all the promises of God and all the things that had happened. And so Jacob must have known what God had said to his grandfather Abraham when he made the covenant with Abraham, uh, Abraham regarding his posterity. Listen to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, or you can translate that slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is a prophecy many, many decades before any of this actually is fulfilled. He said, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a lot there for a different study, but God's message to Abraham concerned the distant future. Jacob would have known this prophecy that, they were, that the nation was going to be uh, transplanted into another nation. They weren't told what nation. And that they would be there and they would be afflicted as slaves for 400 years. Jacob was surely aware of every detail of, of the making of the covenant, including this prediction that Abraham, uh, uh, Abraham's and therefore Jacob's descendants would go to a foreign land and suffer 400 years of affliction. And here, Jacob is about to move out of the promised land and into another nation. He, that had to be weighing on his mind. Am I going to be the one that leads us into this slavery? And God was encouraging him to, 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 to make this move without explicitly reminding him of the darkly foreboding prediction and the suffering that it entailed. Were, were these events part of fulfilling that prophecy? Jacob surely wrestled with whether he was doing the right thing or not. He certainly had some measure of fear. That I'm convinced of, whatever it was, because otherwise it would be pointless for God to say, don't be afraid. You know, if, you're, if, if he wasn't afraid, why in the world would God appear to him and say, do not be afraid. You go ahead and make this move to Egypt. Uh, why tell jo Jacob not to fear if Jacob wasn't wrestling with fear? So I feel certain in my heart, I feel very sure that the context tells us that Jacob at this point still was not sold on this. He was still had some lingering fear there about moving to another nation and leaving the promised land behind. But God made it clear to Jacob that he was, he was the one orchestrating these events. Jacob may have, have initially been concerned that he was taking a detour on his road to the fulfillment of God's promises to his family, it seemed to him like a divergence from the planned pathway. This is the promised land. We're in the promised land. If we go there, we're di diverging away from the, the path that's in front of us. But God was fully at work in the Egyptian sojourn of Jacob's people just as much as he was in Joseph's journey to Egypt wearing the chains of slavery. Now, I think there's an important lesson there. We need to grasp in all of this that the whole idea of a divergence, of a, of a change of plans in our lives, it's really kind of a misnomer. We see it as a, dis, as a delay or perhaps a halting in the work that God has called us to do. 
but that's just not the case. We, we call it a divergence or a delay, but it's not an accident. But, but it's an inter integral part of God's plan for our lives. In, in our journey, in the journey of our lives, God almost never, and you'll tell me if you find this to be true, He almost never takes us directly from point A to point B. Has anybody found that? You know, He says, here's where you are. Here's where I'm going to take you. And it's almost never does He take us to the straight path. There's always, it seems like he takes us off the interstate and takes all the backcountry roads and takes this long circuitous route and goes, you know, everywhere all over creation before he gets us to the place where he wants us to be. Now, our Heavenly Father has a destination in mind for us, for our lives, but, and he has a direction and a place that he's taking us toward. But, but our problem is we think in, let's get from point A to point B and we think in straight line because we're often in a really big hurry about our lives, but here's the reality, and I think if you haven't figured this out, this will maybe help you relax a little bit. God is not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. He, his concern is not with the speed of our travel and getting us to where we need to be as quickly as possible. His concern is that we are prepared properly for the moment when we arrive. His concern is that we have the spiritual growth and maturity to be able to, to be able to, to sustain the calling to which he's calling us. You know, for example, you know, say, say a, a young man feels a calling to, to, to do some great ministry. There's going to be, he feels like he's going to be a great, powerful evangelist. He's going to reach thousands of people. He's going to have this massive ministry. And all that may very well be the calling of God. But the problem is, if that person takes the shortcuts and goes point A to point B without going the pathway that God wants them to go, they will not have the character to sustain the level of integrity that's needed for that size of a ministry. And that's what happens a lot of times. When you see ministries fail, often it's because shortcuts were taken and the character was not built. And if the character is not there as a foundation, it won't sustain the ministry. And so it's, it's in the economy of God, divergent times have their purpose and their blessing. God makes us into what he would have us be in the divergences of our lives. You see this even in Joseph. Um, Joseph had a dream that the brothers were going to bow, but he did not know that God's pathway to get him to that place was to be, first of all, thrown into a pit, then sold into slavery, and then accused of rape, and then put into prison, and forgotten, and then you're going to interpret a dream for, for the most powerful man on earth, and you're, then you're going to rise to power. But see, all of that was necessary because all of that was preparing Joseph. We're going to get to that more a little in just a little bit. It, it was in this sojourn, this trip, this divergence into Egypt, that God was going to fully accomplish His plans for Israel. He said, it's in, in Egypt that I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, I, I said earlier, I want you to think about that, because when you think of that, think of that, about that from the human perspective. A great nation? They're going to be slaves for 400 years. You call that a great nation? How could that be called anything, anything close to a great nation? However, what we need to understand, it was during those 400 years of growth, those 400 years of suffering, 
that God was teaching them humility and dependence upon God. A lesson that much later they still struggled with because the, you know, there were people like the Pharisees in Jesus' day that were proud of the fact that they were the chosen people and they looked down on Gentiles and had this spiritual pride in their lives. You know, as, as I said, the story of Joseph um, really mirrors the story of Israel. It really mirrors our stories, maybe not to the extreme. I hope nobody here gets sold into slavery or thrown into prison, falsely accused of rape or anything like that. But, but at least to, 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 uh, in degrees, at least, it mirrors our lives and the story of the nation of Israel. The difficult and the hard events of Joseph's life, they were not only for God's glory, they were, but they were also ultimately for Joseph's good. Joseph benefited spiritually from the events of his life. The, 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 it is, this is important for us to, to realize because, and this is, I want you to hear this clearly, we must see ourselves not only as merely cogs in the great machinery of God. You see, if there was no love involved in this, you'd say, God's just, just toying with Joseph's life. He's just toying with our lives, putting us in these places and, and all doing all these things without caring about us just so he can fulfill his purpose. But we have to see ourselves not as merely cogs in the great machinery of God, but we must also see ourselves as objects of his love and care at the same time. While all things are ultimately for his glory, we also have to keep in sight the fact that the very hairs on our heads are numbered. And for some of us, it's a running total. Every time we take a shower, he has the update. You know how it is. Some of us know how it is anyway. But we, we have to remember the lessons of Psalm 139 that, that tells us that God intimately knows every, intimately everything about us. And he's involved in all the moments of our lives. When Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, God was there. When Joseph was put on the auction block and sold like a piece of cattle, God was there. God was there when he was in the household of Potiphar as a slave. He was there when, and he saw Joseph, young Joseph, as he was sorely tempted and, and he resisted temptation and, and chose not to dishonor God. God was there when Joseph was thrown into prison unjustly. God was there when Joseph was forgotten for another two years in prison. God was there when Joseph was brought before Pharaoh and then made the second most powerful man in the world. In all of these events, God was there in the life of Joseph, and he was working out all, all of this for his own divine glory, but he was also doing it for the good of Joseph because he was using all of those things to make him a good, just, kind, patient, forgiving man. He was, he, was, he, he was made first and foremost humble through all of these events. And it was that humility that, that God used, to, that to, allowed God to use him greatly. God developed Joseph's character over a long period of time. And we have to remember character development is not an overnight event. It is not. He does uh, the, the same thing in our lives and he did the same thing in the nation of Israel. And so now at God's behest, after hearing God say, don't be afraid, go, I'm in this. Israel took the first step toward Egypt. Then God gives us a formal list of the names of 70 people, 66 uh, of, of whom came with Jacob on the trip, plus Joseph and his uh, wife and children who were already, already there. Give me a total of 70. 
that constituted the family of Israel in, in Egypt. We're not going to read all those names, and you can thank me later for that. Um, if you want to read it, read it your, on, your, on your own time. But let's pick it up in verse 28. This is after Israel. Now, when we say Jacob and Israel, those names are interchangeable, same person. After he had arrived in Egypt with his family. Verse 28, he, is speaking, he speaking of Israel, he had sent Judah ahead of him uh, to, to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, uh, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now let's unpack this a little bit. So Joseph gets his chariot ready, and he, and he goes to Goshen. He presents himself to Jacob. And when he saw his father there, we're told that he fell on Jacob's neck and he wept a good while, a long time. Now, we're not told that Jacob wept, which means that he probably didn't. In fact, he, he may have just stood there dry-eyed and bewildered because, uh, frankly, Jacob may have been wary as he tried to process this development that he thought he would never see. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I mean, how he, now he's... He's not only heard that Joseph is alive, but he sees him. And, and on the one hand, he knew that Joseph was still alive and he knew this was his son. But his son, think about this. Joseph had been changed beyond recognition. Last time he saw him, he was maybe like a 17, 18 year old kid. Maybe, you know, had the, was trying to grow a beard, but it wasn't really coming in full. Now he sees him in Egyptian uh, clothing and he shaved completely. And when we, when we say completely the Egyptians, the pattern, the habit of the Egyptians, shaving their head and everything. So he's completely bald, no hair on him anywhere. And he looked like an Egyptian. He spoke the language of Egypt. He was the chief minister in the country's administration. He had an Egyptian wife from the highest priestly order of an Egyptian polytheistic religion, as far removed from Israel's monotheism as it could be. So although he had his son back physically, Jacob must have wondered whether his son had been lost by his assimilation into the heathen culture, had he been lost to the God of Israel. And also, not only that, what two of his other sons? Because now, Jacob knew, although he may have long suspected, now he knew that they had lied to him about the death of Joseph. Not only that, but they had sustained the lie for 20 plus years. What was he to think? What was he to do? It was devastating. There was a lot going on in this moment. And, and by the way, it's striking that there is no record of the sons expressing repentance to Jacob for what they had done. Now, he may well have done that, but it's certainly not recorded. So Jacob's concerns are, are very understandable. I think we can get it because in, in the contemporary world, many believers have lived to see the culture around them change completely in terms of values and norms and attitudes toward faith and attitudes toward God and Christ. I mean, in, in, 
I'm looking in this room here. Most of us are old enough that you have witnessed cataclysmic changes in our culture. I think most of us, if we were to talk about it, we would say there are things now that are championed that were absolutely even unthinkable in our, in our, in our younger days. And so we see that change and, and, and parents today, you know, cannot help noticing the effects of the secular secularization on their children and the rapidity with which the Christian teaching they receive at home disappears. They go to college and all of a sudden, you know, they're brainwashed and they don't believe anymore. Now, relationships from a family perspective may remain good, but the question that troubles many, many parents today is, are my children still committed to the great project of the kingdom of God as they once appeared to be? The, the, the warnings in the New Testament of the dangers of falling in love with the world were not made lightly. And this is, this is what we in the Church of America have got to come to grips with. We've got to remember that we have to guard our hearts and to keep ourselves from falling in love with the world. And because it's easy to do, and, and each of us needs to take very real care not to be seduced into an incremental assimilation that, that lands us in the joylessness of compromise. It's very easy to, comp, to get to that place of compromise. And, and, it, and you know, you've heard about the, the slippery slope. The, the idea is that with a small compromise, eventually it can lead you to greater compromises. Well, Joseph here saw a real opportunity to keep his family apart from that surrounding culture. He said, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, that's a very odd thing for us to hear. Now, that does not mean that Egyptians didn't have livestock. It just means that they disapproved of shepherds. Uh, and, and various reasons have been advanced to explain it. Uh, one, thing, one idea is that keepers of livestock tended to be from lower peasant classes, and in fact, Egyptians saw themselves as descended directly from the gods. And so people from other classes were really heavily looked down on. Uh, the shepherds could also, they might also be, be nomads. And, and therefore, they were held in suspicion by people who were city dwellers. Um, or, and I think this was a significant, a very real possibility. And that is that those, particularly when you're talking about Israel, that they might sacrifice some of the animals that were considered sacred by the majority of the Egyptians. We're, we're given more insight in the book of Exodus where Moses asked Pharaoh to let uh, Israel go out and worship God. He says, you, you remember at one point in time, he said, let us go out into the wilderness for three days and so we can worship God there. Why would he ask that? Uh, th here's what, what happened. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right. In other words, Pharaoh says, sacrifice to God, worship him. Don't leave Egypt though. You can't leave. But Moses said it would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. So it's not just that they were shepherds, but the sacrifices themselves would be an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So that you can sense there's a religious aspect here. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice the Lord our God as he tells us. So this, this may refer to the fact that in Egypt, the, the ram was sacred to two specific gods in their pantheon of gods, the gods Amun and Kunum. I, I have no idea if I said those right. Uh, but uh, and so 
if rams were considered sacred, then therefore related animals like lambs and sheep might well have been regarded in the same way. And so they saw them as sacred animals, you know, and if they saw the Israelites uh, sacrificing rams or sheep or lambs, that could be something they say, hey, you're killing the sacred animal and it could cause all kinds of issues. So in light of these cultural and religious practices, we can see why Pharaoh would want to settle Israel into a separate enclave, get them in the land of Goshen away from everybody else. Joseph knew that this is what Pharaoh was going to do. And he wanted his people separated from the Egyptians. He wanted his family there. So this is why he told them, I'm going to tell them that you're sh their shepherd. Just tell them the truth. I'm going to tell them who you are, what you do. And when you stand before Pharaoh, you tell him the same thing. You tell him the truth, that you're a keeper of, of livestock. Uh, because knowing that, he's going to want to keep you away from all of the Egyptians. So he told him the truth. He told him to do that. And eventually, Joseph pre presented five of his brothers to Pharaoh. We don't know which five. We're not told. And then the conversation ran just as Joseph predicted. And the brothers requested to be allowed to settle in Goshen. The request was granted by Pharaoh speaking through, through Joseph. And in fact, Pharaoh even said, hey, if you're gifted, if you're good at this, um, how about you supply some, some shepherds and some herders for my own livestock? And then came a grand moment when Joseph brought his father Jacob to stand before Pharaoh. And uh, uh, verses 7 through 11 says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, which by the way, the Egyptians very uh, much valued longevity of life. And so, uh, and they're, from history, it tells us their average uh, lifespan was about 110 years. So this would have been very impressive to Pharaoh to hear this. Uh, Jacob said to the Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So it was a very remarkable meeting because un Jacob, unlike his son, did not use the language of subservience or dependence. But on the contrary, Jacob actually assumed a superior position and blessed Pharaoh. He, he, he actually said, hey, you know what? I'm going to bless you, uh, son. <laughs> I don't think he said it that way. But uh, And Pharaoh's question to Jacob is telling how many are the days of years. I already kind of mentioned that. And he admitted his age was 130. And then once more, Joseph hears his father bless Pharaoh before departing from the presence. So uh, I want to move on because we still got a little bit to cover here tonight. In the next section, which we're not going to read, um, and it won't, we're not going to take that much time talking about it because it's told about Joseph's activities during the famine. Uh, but uh, we see in the next section that the Egyptian people ended up losing much during the time of famine. First, Joseph sold the grain to the Egyptians and the surrounding nations, and he put the money into Pharaoh's treasury. But guess what? Guess what happens when you do that? And there's the economy is based on agriculture and it's stagnant. It's not happening. Guess what happens? The money supply dries up. And eventually the money supply dried up and the people clamored for food to keep them alive. So then Joseph then instituted a barter system whereby the people would give him their livestock in exchange for food. 
And that system lasted for a year, but eventually they had no more livestock to give. And it, it, it's all in Pharaoh's possession and most likely very good possibility that it had been given into the custody of Jacob's sons as Pharaoh had requested because now they're taking care of livestock. So the, the, the people then offered the only thing they had left when they're out of money and they're out of livestock, they offered their land and themselves as serfs to Pharaoh in exchange for food. And the result was that ownership of all the land passed into the hands of Pharaoh, just like everything else. So you can see how through this process, Pharaoh not only got more wealthy, but he got far more powerful. He was more powerful now than he had ever been. And, and by the way, when they, when they gave their lands and themselves to work the land, it was not a, uh, a sad situation for them. They were actually very grateful to Joseph because he had helped them survive. Uh, and, and so, but, um, and then after that, because that wasn't quite the end, because after that happened, Joseph knew the end of the drought was coming, which meant that agriculture was going to be starting up again. And so knowing that the famine was in its last stages, he introduced finally a system of supplying seed to the Egyptians and then, he, and then taxing the resultant crop at 20%. But by contrast, during this time, Israel and all of the family of Jacob enjoyed the favor of Joseph's special protection and they had all the food they needed. So it's not difficult to imagine that this may have sown the seeds of resentment between Egypt and Israel that would eventually culminate in a reversal of those roles for Israel prospered in the region of Goshen. So Jacob lived in Goshen for 17 years, which is exactly the same length of time that Joseph had been with him in Canaan at the beginning. And aware of his impending death, he called Joseph to him and made, the promise, made him promise with an oath uh, we, we didn't read this part, but he made him promise. He said, put your hand under my thigh. We don't, we don't know what the symbolism means, but it was obviously a way that they signified an oath. Um, but he, he made him promise with an oath not to bury him in Egypt, but to bury him with Abraham and Isaac in their tomb in Canaan. And what that tells us is that jo Joseph shows us by this request that he saw the future not in Egypt, but in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and himself. He said, this is not our place. This is not where our future is. Even though he had come to Egypt at the call of God, he knew that the stay there would be, would be temporary. So he would lay down a marker. And by insisting on being buried in Canaan, he would point all subsequent generations to where their future lay. And, in, in the, and the first one to whom he, he would communicate that message was to Joseph because he, he asked Joseph to bury him back in, in Canaan. And, 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 and by doing that, he thus forced uh, Joseph to make the journey back to Canaan. Uh, Jacob knew that Joseph had a lot going on. He had a lot of power here. He had all, this is where his life was. He wanted Joseph to set back his foot back in the land of Canaan again. The brothers would go, uh, and no doubt J Jacob would hope that all of this would reestablish a link with the promised land. Somehow, one way or another, he was going to get them to set foot in Canaan again. In effect, you can think of it like this. Jacob wanted his funeral to precipitate a mini exodus. To, he wanted it to be like a harbinger of the greater exodus that was yet to come. Joseph had given Joseph to Jacob as a possession, but it was not permanent. Egypt was not 
the promised land. Now, I, I bring this out because I think there's something powerful for us in this. It is easy to get comfortable in a temporary position and forget that God still has something more for us. We get comfortable and we stop moving forward and then we miss out on the final promise God has made to us. You know, that's what happened to Terah. Terah was Abraham's father. Did you realize that before Abraham, Abraham ever left and went to uh, the promised land, did you know that his father Terah started that journey first? Did you know that? Genesis 11, 31 and 32. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the, into the land of Canaan. So where were they going? They left to go to Canaan. It says, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. He set out for Canaan, the promised land, but he never made it because he settled in Haran. He died without seeing Canaan. We can't get comfortable uh, along our journey in life. Wherever you are, you have to know God has something more planned for your life. So don't ever settle for where you are and miss out on the next great thing God wants to do in you and through you. Don't die in Haran. Keep moving toward Canaan. Keep moving forward. One day, not long after Jacob made Joseph swear to bury him in Canaan after his death, word came to Joseph that his father was ill and was failing rapidly. So Joseph went to visit his father and took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And in their meeting, Jacob adopted Joseph's sons as his own. And he tells Joseph that he will treat them as his other children. He specifically mentions Reuben and Simeon because they're the two firstborn sons. And he thus incorporates them into the tribes of Israel with the implication that they're no longer Egyptians. Now, I want you to think about it. I don't know if you ever wondered about this, but you have all these sons of Jacob that are the heads of these tribes, but there's no tribe of Joseph. You ever thought about that? You have all these 10 brothers with their tribes, no tribe of Joseph. Why is that? Because... Jacob adopted Joseph's sons. And so Ephraim and Manasseh, two tribes, are the tribe of Jacob. What, that, what, what the effect of that is, in the future, we know that both of these tribes will receive allotments of land when they come back into the promised land after the time of slavery in Egypt. And they would receive allotments of lands along with all the other tribes that were descended from Jacob's sons. This decision, by doing this, what that means is that Joseph, in effect, will have a double allotment among his brothers. Because land was given to one of his sons and more land was given to another of his sons, that is his tribe. So he received the double allotment as a result of that. So when you read about the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, those are both part of what would be called the tribe of Joseph. So Jacob blessed in, in that moment, he then blessed jo, Jake, uh, Joseph's sons. And, and it was, you read the story, and Joseph was careful to get them lined up. He had, he had uh, the older one here, which was Manasseh, and he did Ephraim on, the, on, the right hand, on his right-hand side. And he, and he did this because he wanted to make sure Manasseh was 
on the right-hand side of his father Jacob, and Ephraim was over here because he knew he was going to bless them, and he wanted Manasseh to get the blessing of the older child. And you read the story, you know what Jacob did? I almost, I almost wonder if he, if, he, if he did it the last minute, like to try to get Joseph. He's like, uh, wah <laughs> you know, <laughs> gotcha, you know. And, and Joseph actually got upset and he tried to correct him. He said, no, 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 you got, you got it wrong. He said, no, no, Joseph, I know exactly what I'm doing. And he told him, the younger is going to be greater than the, the older. This is a mirror of what had happened with him. He was the younger who received the greater blessing. And, and it's just another reminder uh, for us that God, the blessings of God do not come to us based on human entitlement or human custom. God chooses whom he will bless and how he will bless them. Well, Jacob's final act was to call all of his sons together to hear his farewell address. And the speech that he gives is really in the form of a lengthy poem that's full of uh, metaphorical language that even scholars find difficult to understand. But Jacob, we're not going to have time to go through all these, but he speaks to each of his sons in turn. Some of what he says is, by the way, of explicit rebuke for their past misdeeds. For instance, to the first three sons, uh, to, to Reuben, he spoke uh, some harsh words because he slept with his father's concubine. And then he spoke harshly to Simeon and Le Levi because of violence that they had perpetrated, perpetrated. Some of what he said was praise, as in the case of Judah, who's represented as the leader to whom the people's obedience will be directed. And Joseph is described as a fruitful bough, and Jacob pronounces upon him many blessings from Almighty God, the God of Israel, much more blessing than any on any of other assembled sons. And then he ends it all with a, with a brief reference to Benjamin. And then he tells his sons exactly where to bury him, and he breathes his last. And J Joseph wept over his dead father, then he commanded his expert embalmers to prepare the body and to wrap it in linen, which took, uh, that process took 40 days. It's quite an amazing process. And this process of mummification was very important to Egyptian culture. Uh, great stress was, was placed on preserving the dead in a lifelike form. That's because they believed that the survival of the body was necessary for continued existence in the underworld after death. So that was why they worked so hard to try to preserve and make a, a, a dead person look as lifelike as possible because if that body decayed, then they ceased to exist in the underworld. That was their belief system. And then the whole nation of Egypt mourned for 70 days at the death of the father, the man who had saved their nation from starvation. Joseph then approached, finally approached Pharaoh for permission to go to Canaan to bury his father, he, he very pointedly adds that he's going to return just in case Pharaoh might think that Joseph is going to use the opportunity to go back to his family roots. And the funeral was this elaborate affair, the biggest, largest funeral recorded in Scripture. Not only did all of, of Jacob's family go up, which by now, you know, th this is 17 years later. So there's that many more children and grandchildren and all these great grandchildren. They're all there, but also... Many dignitaries from Egypt with their chariots and their horsemen, which makes you wonder if maybe Pharaoh's like, I'm going to send a lot of people there to make sure Joseph comes back. I, I don't know that, but, it, but this whole, this massive entourage was unheard of in that part of the world and it stirred up immense interest there in Canaan. And then they laid Jacob in his ancestral tomb 
made their way back to, to Egypt. Then let's get to life after Jacob's death because if you remember uh, when Joseph, Joseph forgave his brothers, there was evidence there that they were still very leery of what he was going to do. And I'm going to show you that, that that existed, that was in the back of their mind all along. Verse 15 of Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So Jacob was gone. The family was left without his strong influence. And we know very clearly, it's obvious, Joseph was by far the most powerful man among his brothers. He operated in a vastly more complex and high-powered world than, than theirs. And they were completely dependent upon him as their benefactor. And so as a result, when Jacob is gone, they began to worry that Joseph's attitude is going to change now that Jacob is out of the way. Maybe he was just being nice to us for the sake of our dad. And so they sent him a message and said, hey, uh, I forgot to tell you, uh, dad said before he died, you're supposed to forgive us. So will you forgive us? That's in essence what they said. Now, we don't know if, if Jacob actually said that, what his brothers claim. We, we don't know that for sure, but they're clearly trying to use his authority, even though he was dead, to gain leverage with Joseph. But I want you to understand their, their statement, even in that, shows clear repentance. They admitted that what they had done to Joseph was evil, and they explicitly asked him to forgive. Joseph's response, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about uh, that, uh, excuse me, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to, to them. So for the final time in this wonderful narrative, Joseph wept. Sad, we can imagine that his brother's still had not grasped the fullness of his forgiveness that he had already expressed. He, he, Joseph recognized he, that he wasn't the person who could stand in judgment as brothers. He said, he said uh, who, who am I? Uh, who, uh, he said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He said, listen, I am not the one to judge you. That's not my job. Boy, this is a powerful lesson for us when it comes to forgiveness, to say, it's not my job to judge you. That's God's job. And Joseph says, I'm not God. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to stand in judgment of you. And, and uh, in fact, he reemphasized that while their actions were evil, that even in the midst of that, God was still at work behind the scenes fulfilling his ultimate plan, not only for Joseph, not only for Israel, not only for all of his brothers, but really for the entire world. The, 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 and I say that because, no, we know that the famine was there, but he, by doing what he did, he preserved the line of Judah, whereby the Savior for the entire world came. 
the, the tribes of Israel multiplied and Joseph grew older and near death and he called his brothers to him and he said his last words to them. They're found in verses 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm about to die, but we're not going to stay here in Egypt. You heard, you know what dad said? You know why he was buried in, in Canaan? God's going to bring us up out of this place someday. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph believed that God would one day fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hence, his last request to all of his brothers and to the nation of Israel was that when that exodus happened, when that moment came, when God brought them out of the land of Egypt, that, that, uh, that they would take his bones with them so that his last resting place would be with the patriarchs of the, in the promised land. The New Testament refers to these last words of Joseph as evidence of his faith in God. Hebrews eleven twenty two 22 says, It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with him when they left. Yes, he was embalmed in an Egyptian fashion. And yes, he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Yet, by insisting that his remains should one day be taken to Israel to the promised land, taken by Israel to the promised land, Joseph demonstrated that he knew that the future of Israel did not lie in Egypt. He knew that his nation would one day leave Egypt and carry forward the great project of salvation, the, the seed project, the seed of the woman that had, that had started with Abraham and would keep going until the seed himself, God incarnate, would come to planet Earth and, and effect salvation for the world and so bring in the great blessing promised to the patriarchs. And in closing the night, I want, I want to touch on two great thing, themes that I think are so powerful that we see through the life of Joseph and I want to just bring them up. And I, we've talked a lot about both of these throughout our study. But I want to bring them up and just close with these so that they'll be fresh in our mind. The first theme is that of the sovereignty of God. That God is at work even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when things look bad to us. The life of Joseph reminds us that our circumstances do not determine whether God is with us or whether we're walking in his favor. God, Joseph was walking in the favor of God when he was in a prison, falsely imprisoned as a uh, falsely accused as a rapist. He was, he was walking in the favor of God when he was a slave in Egypt. It's, our circumstances don't determine whether we are experiencing the favor of God and whether he is with us. God was with Joseph through some of the darkest, most painful circumstances imaginable, worse than most of us can even begin to think of. And he, but he was working on a greater plan than Joseph could imagine, and, and his plan could only be fulfilled after Joseph walked through those dark valleys. There was no other pathway to be second command in, in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, other than the pathway by which God had, had him travel. The same is true in our lives. There are things that God is trying to do in us. There are things that he's trying to do through us. 
that can only be accomplished after we walk through some dreary and dismal time in our life. We, we just have to remember during those times, we have to be like Joseph. Don't get angry. Don't blame God. Don't sit around whining, complain. Just say, you know what? God is with me. He will see me through. I'm gonna, I am going to trust in God no matter what. Then and only then will we begin to see his plan unfurl in our lives. The second theme that I think is so vitally important and I think is crucial in today's world, in today's church, and that is the theme of forgiveness. This is such a powerful part of the story of Joseph. We spent quite a bit of time dealing with forgiveness a few weeks ago, and, and I don't, don't want to rehash all of that. We talked, if you remember, about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and that sort of thing. And if you, if you don't remember that, I don't remember what week it was, but you can go back a few weeks and watch one of the previous studies and, and uh, catch up on that. But I think it's important that we do uh, close out our study with these thoughts concerning forgiveness. We need to remember some things about forgiveness. Number one, forgiveness is always possible, even if reconciliation is not. Remember, there are two different things. Forgiveness is something that happens inwardly, inside of me, choosing to let a debt go, saying that that person owes me nothing. Uh, but reconciliation is what takes place when the other person repents and our relationship is healed. I cannot make somebody repent, therefore I cannot make reconciliation happen. I can choose to forgive, but that does not necessarily mean that reconciliation will happen. Second thing, if we forgive, forgiveness frees us from the actions of another. When I walk in unforgiveness, I am under the control I'm responding to the actions of other people. And forgiveness sets me free from that. Here's the next one. Forgiveness opens the door to any self-imposed prison of hatred, resentment, and anger. Forgiveness. I, heard, I, I forget who said this, but uh, I read it a while back, and it said this, if I can remember it right now off the top of my head. Forgiveness is opening a prison door and discovering that the person you set free is yourself. We forgive because as Christians, we know that God is in all events working them together for our ultimate good. We, walk, we look at Joseph's life, and one of the things we can learn is that when we walk with God, when we trust Him, when we realize that He is working, even in the darkest times, even when somebody does something absolutely wicked to us, the offender may wield their evil tool as an act of malice designed to wound us. But that evil tool becomes a scalpel in the hand of God to perform surgery on our heart and our soul. The incision wounds still hurt. But the wound that the enemy would use to destroy our great God uses to build the character of his son Jesus in our lives. And we, we remember in those moments that even when there's pain, even when there's betrayal, even when there's all these other things, just as God was with Joseph, so is he with us. Amen. Bow your head and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reality that you are with us. 
through the hard times, through the difficult times. Sometimes, God, you even lead us into those places because there's things that you want to teach us. And we can't, leave, we can't learn those things any other way or any other circumstance. And so, God, in those moments, and whether it's uh, work that you're doing or whether it's just an evil act that someone else does, we know, God, that you cause all things to work together for, good, for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we stand on that. We believe that. Therefore, God, we choose to walk in your grace and reflect your forgiveness and to forgive others around us. And God, we know that's an easy thing to say, but it's not always easy to do. But I pray, God, you would help us to realize that even when somebody else sticks a knife in our back and twists it in an effort to wound us, that you will take that very thing and use it as a scalpel to do surgery on us to make us more like Christ. So, Lord, help us to learn to just trust you, to wait on you, to leave things in your hand that belong to you. And, Lord, I pray that in so doing, that you would use our lives like Joseph to touch the lives of many people, that you would, you would raise us up, not for our glory, but for yours. We thank you for all of these things. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.